Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Well, the United States dropped the mother of all bombs in Afghanistan. We all know that now. That thing was massive and destroyed an ISIS series of caves, we're told, in, uh, in Afghanistan. More than 90 ISIS fighters were killed. And there are people who are saying it was exactly the right thing to do, that it was uh, a, a brilliant stroke. It, it reminds uh, certainly the, uh, the terror groups that the United States is no longer operated by Barack Obama as commander-in-chief. Then I read the opinion of Doug Wissing, Douglas Wissing, and uh, it's very interesting. And dropping the mother of all bombs in Afghanistan, says Doug Wissing, was a huge mistake. He was embedded with U.S. troops in Afghanistan for three times on three occasions where he saw how the Taliban, al-Qaeda, and eventually ISIS were making life miserable for American troops, even on their own huge and heavily fortified and guarded uh, bases. And we've spoken with Doug Wissing in the past and uh, about how it was actually American citizens who were funding the enemy in, uh, in Afghanistan. Well, Douglas Wissing's new book is Hopeless but Optimistic, journeying through America's endless war in Afghanistan. Doug, good to talk to you again. It's been a while. It has been. It's great to talk to you again, Roy. Would you tell us, please, remind us about what life was like for you embedded with U.S. troops on the front lines? You were the grunts who were doing the fighting, not the generals in in headquarters. What was that like? Well, you know, we're in our 16th year of war in Afghanistan, and as I speak to groups, many people are surprised to learn that it's by far still our largest foreign military engagement, the largest United, American United States engagement. Uh, we've still got uh, oh, probably around 10,000 soldiers on the ground there, plus untold numbers of highly paid contractors, Department of Defense contractors, and many other agencies. There's probably around 26,000 of those. And we're spending last year, the request was about $50 billion, which is just kind of a number. But to compare it, our our actions in Syria against ISIS is only budgeted for about $5 million. So $50 billion for Afghanistan, $5 billion for um, ISIS in, in Syria and Libya. So we're, we're looking at something that is uh, the forgotten war, in a way. It's still there. It's still going on. Certainly the mother of all bombs, Moab, caught people's attention. But, you know, this is still going on. And, and the big problem is, is this is essentially an unwinnable war. So what, what I've been documenting through the years in, in this most recent book, Hopeless but Optimistic, was what was life like for soldiers on the ground? What were the challenges that they were facing, and why was it an unwinnable war? Why why were these systemic failures there that now is talking about re-escalating once again? You know, is that going to work? Does is Moab really a consequential act? Does it move Afghanistan closer to peace or to victory or to whatever term you want to use? I mean, the answer is. Not very likely. It, it could just be another irrelevant act. So, I mean, I read a piece that you wrote for The Hill, the newspaper in, uh, in Washington, and, and you wrote that Moab was the mother of all mistakes and may have made the Afghanistan war even more unwinnable. And I'm guessing that would be because the, the actual impact, and no pun intent, intended, of the, of the, of the bomb, would serve to unify jihadi groups against Western nations, particularly the United States. Is is that the yeah, fundamental it, it, argument? It, it evoked some pretty interesting consensus from many many parts of the Afghan polity. The former Afghan president Hamid Karzai, he wrote, he, he basically protested the use of the, that bomb in Afghanistan. He tweeted that this is not the war on terror, but the main, most brutal misuse of our country as a testing ground for new and dangerous weapons. And then he, he tweeted in, a, in another instance, it is upon us, Afghans, to stop the U.S. 
So that's the former president. The, the Taliban also condemned the use of the bomb. They, they said in a statement, using this massive bomb cannot be justified and will leave a material and psychological impact on people. Now, you, you kind of go, well, the Taliban, of course they would, they would protest that. But you have to remember the Taliban were fighting the ISIS bomb was dropped on a small group of ISIS leaders. And prior to that bomb, the Taliban and the ISIS had literally been jockeying for and indeed had, had attacked one another. So we have managed to anneal various parts of, uh, of the Afghan insurgency the consensus, but it hadn't happened before with one great big bomb. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Douglas Wissing is an author of great repute when it comes to issues that have to do with the military, and particularly in Afghanistan, where Doug has been uh, on many occasions and on three separate occasions, was embedded with U.S. troops where all the fighting was taking place. His newest book is Hopeless But Optimistic, Journeying Through America's Endless War in Afghanistan. And since the dropping of the mother of all bombs, the focus has shifted as much as it can from the Democratic People's Republic of Korea to what's going on in Afghanistan. Doug, in uh, Hopeless But Optimistic, you're right that corruption in Afghanistan angers the people of the country to the point that they actively or passively support the insurgents. So if the Moab uh, creates the environment for the insurgents to say, okay, we won't, we won't be pulling against each other, but we'll actually work together uh, because of this bomb, and then you have a populace that is fed up with the corruption and uh, is looking to the insurgents for credibility. That's not, a, that's not a, a healthy recipe for coming out of Afghanistan victorious, which you say isn't going to happen anyway. Well, we, do have, we have to remember that Afghanistan is ranked among the most corrupt, corrupt governments on the planet. It's still ninth on the failed state list. Um, Afghanistan, the Afghans, remain at the bottom of virtually every human development indices. This is despite more money being spent in Afghanistan by the United States, $117 billion, more money than the U.S. spent on the Marshall Plan in Europe, adjusted for inflation. So a stunning, staggering amount of of money poured in, and the Afghans have been victim of what's called phantom aid. That money was all wasted or stolen. Um, by corrupt Afghan officials, by uh, for-profit international development corporations. It didn't get to the Afghans that needed it. They, you know, they were at the bottom of the charts when we invaded in 2001. And 16 years later, $117 billion later, they're still at the bottom of virtually every development indices. Has it been worth while at all, this the military campaign, in Afghanistan, we had Canadians fighting on the sharp, pointy end of the stick for 10 years. And we had over 100 Canadians lose their lives. Other Canadian soldiers are dealing with PTSD and dealing with other issues that they brought back from uh, the war, injuries which will affect them for the rest of their lives. Was any of it, in your estimation, worth it? Oh, it's such a great question, and I, I wished I had a, a happy answer, and I, I'm, I'm afraid I don't. We, we're really looking at a failed way of war, this corporatized way of war, the 21st century way of war. It, it simply, if this is the model, it, it is a failed model. So doing more of the same isn't going to fix the problem. What's the morale of NATO troops or any troops in Afghanistan now, because their lives are so totally different to anything they're used to. These are young people. In many cases, they're reservists. Uh, certainly in, in the case of Canada, we send many reservists over. What's life like for these, these troops? And, and you wrote about that. Talk to us about it, please. Yeah, you know, the, the, the situation evolves through time. Um, there were many very isolated combat outposts across Afghanistan and battled for forward operating bases and whatnot. Now, everyone is kind of penned up into three major um, facilities. Uh, but it's, you know, you're, you're inside the wire. Very few Americans 
what's called breaking the fire, leaving the base, happens very, very rarely. And just to give you a reference of how impossible security is today, um, in, in Kabul, in, in the capital, our diplomats are only, we have a, this vast walled uh, compound in Kabul that has got multiple rings of security. It's only about a mile and a half from the embassy to the airport. And there used to be armored, um, you know, armored cars that would go back and forth, you know, SUVs and whatnot. Now, today, things are so dangerous in the capital that the diplomats, everyday staffers, can't even go a mile and a half. They have to helicopter from the embassy to the airport. That's in the capital. And what you have is that insurgencies are centrifugal. Most people say the Taliban control about half of the country now. Um, others go as high as 90% in the countryside. Uh, the Taliban led insurgents are pressuring uh, provincial centers all over the country, um, and including Kabul. That's under under these constant attacks and kidnappings are rife. That's that's it's just a dangerous place to be. And you know, insurgencies go from the countryside to the provincial centers. That's really what we're seeing. You told us at the beginning of our conversation that in Hopeless But Optimistic, your new book, that you talked and spent talked to and spent time with the soldiers on the front line, soldiers who are doing the actual fighting now. How are they doing? How, how committed are they? And how much do they want it to end? You know, I, I would imagine that on the other side, on the insurgency side, if the United States cannot beat them in 16 years, they must be pretty cocky. Well, the Taliban have always said, I mean, they talk about asymmetrical warfare, where one side has got much more military might, technological abilities. That's asymmetrical warfare. The Taliban commanders have been in forever. The Americans have watches, but we have the time. So they're just, you know, they're just waiting it out. And so, you know, Obama had the big surge. We got up to, you know, 100,000 American troops. I think there were 140,000, you know, total NATO troops, including a lot of Canadians. Um, and they waited that out. That went away. And now Trump is back. And, you know, he's, he's probably going to lash out again. Um, and the Taliban, they just hunker down. Um, they did the same thing with the British. The, the You know, the British waged three wars in Afghanistan and didn't do well in any of them. Soviets? I've been looking into what the British had to say about their experience through those wars, and I ran across something by Field Marshal Lord Roberts of Kandahar, who was a, a great British war hero and commanded British forces in the Second Afghan War in 1879 and 1880 that they didn't do so well with. And he, uh, Field Marshal Roberts, he had a great line. He said, I feel I am right when I say that the less the Afghans see of us, the less they will dislike us. Final question for you. That's where we are. We just need to get out. Yeah. Final question for you. Today the world is looking at two two areas of conflict. One is, or potential conflict, one is North Korea and the other is Afghanistan. There's concern about potential war over uh, the North Korea-U.S. situation with China, counseling that nobody can possibly win. Which of the two situ- which of the two issues, situations rather, geographically, geopolitically, is the more dangerous, do you think? Oh, quite clearly, North Korea. Because you know, of the, because of the potential for nukes. really does not pose an existential threat to us. Yeah. And I, I, I have made a, an argument, and actually the, um, I think the op-ed that you saw on the Hill which is, you know, we need to we need to understand that great Brit, uh, business term, sunk cost bias. You don't keep throwing good money after bad, and this has just been a bad investment. And we need to. I'm talking about Afghanistan. We can use that money better. We have lots lots of uh, places to put it, not just in warfare, but yeah, the North Korean issue is a much more dangerous issue. Doug, thank you so much for the time. It's a restless world, and Afghanistan is a place where the fighting, as you say, has been going on for 16 years, and Canada's 
military involved for 10 of those years. Hopeless but Optimistic is Doug Wissing's new book. Thank you, Doug. We'll talk again. Thank you, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Alan St. Pierre is the former executive director of Normal in the United States. It's a pro-marijuana organization that has been very active in not only the U.S., but also Canada. He's the vice president now of Freedom Leaf, and he's a partner of Sensible Alternative Investments. He's also a member of the Normal Board of Directors. And there's a Deloitte study on how profitable marijuana business will be. By the way, later on in the hour, we'll talk to Jody Emery, who goes to court next week on trafficking charges with her husband, Mark, over the running of the cannabis culture stores in Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. Uh, Alan St. Pierre, you and I have talked about marijuana and legalizing marijuana for probably 20, 25 years on the air now. Did you ever think that I would introduce you by saying that you're the vice president of a company called Freedom Leaf (laughs) and a partner of Sensible Alternative Investments and that a Deloitte study on the profitability of marijuana business would be. Did you ever think we'd get to the point, Alan, where I'd be introducing you that way instead of saying, here's the executive director of Normal? Well, I guess by the fact that I am uh, now uh, on the backside of being the director of Normal is indicative of where the market's going and where the policies are going. I guess I had always personally uh, and professionally aspired to the point where uh, marijuana would be treated like uh, a commodity or certainly a really regulated one like alcohol. So, uh, I guess, in essence, why in these 25 years we've been discussing, I took a youthful indiscretion and turned it into a lifelong profession. <laughs> well, you did, and very successfully. Um, was it always going to be Canada before the United States, where there will be a national doing away with the prohibition on marijuana? I, I did always believe that from a, a national point of view, Canada was better poised. You probably recall our discussions in low 1999 and 2000 when uh, Jean Chrétien uh, was was very close to pushing this uh, through in the Senate, and then later on his swan song speech on the way out, uh, uh, sort of with a wink and nod, made it clear that uh, he was in favor of these reforms, even if the Parliament was not at the moment. What uh, What's the situation now in the U.S.? Is it still three states in the Northwest that have legalized marijuana, in, in the, largely in the same way Canada will next year, uh, or are there other states that have come on side with legalizing? And if there aren't other states, are there others prepared to come on side? Oh, yes. So we're about to see huge cataclysmic changes. Indeed, Oregon, Washington, and Colorado and Alaska make up the four states that currently where an adult over 21 years of age can go in and purchase marijuana like you can alcohol. But as California, Massachusetts, and Maine citizens this past year voted for legalization, California being a nation-state unto itself will completely change the scope of the market and the taxation scheme. And so as they come on board about a year and a half from now or sooner uh, with full legalization, it will uh, largely tip the country, one would suspect. Um, the southeast United States and some Midwest uh, states will probably take a decade or longer but New England and the western United States and a few Rocky Mountain states will, will move in this direction, certainly by 2018-2020. Alan, uh, when, when people who are opposed to legalizing marijuana say, look, this is, the, this is a real problem. What's happened now is that the, the gateway drug has been legalized by the federal government of Canada. And even if there are significant numbers of people who do not use cannabis as a gateway drug, there will be equally significant numbers or larger numbers of people who will, in fact, use marijuana as a gateway drug. And 10, 15 years down the road, maybe less, there's going to be uh, an exponential problem where you'll have a measurable percentage of the population doing harder drugs and causing more of a societal issue. What's the, what's the, what's the counterposition to that? Well, based on the data of the years of prohibition in this country, 40-plus years, the gateway theory has been largely debunked in that the drugs that actually children between the ages of 13 and 17 use in this order are tobacco, alcohol, pharmaceutical products, and then marijuana. Indeed, marijuana would be the first illegal drug that they use, but it's not the first drug that they use. 
so when as marijuana has become legal in the states of notably Colorado and Washington, uh, the data suggests that there is no increase in children using marijuana more than in the previous years, and that there is definitely no uh, binary correlation between using marijuana and hard drugs. Uh, one of the things that sort of from a cultural point of view that has displaced this almost entirely in the United States, and I suspect in some parts of Canada, is this incredible so-called epidemic around uh, uh, opioids, and legal or illegal. And that data has clearly shown that people don't use marijuana and then go on to say use uh, heroin or fentanyl. It's that they often become injured, use a legal opioid, and then when they get off of that, they then see uh, illegal opioids. So um, we don't hear much about gateway or stepping stone effect anymore in the general discussions around marijuana. Okay, so tell me please, how how is this a profitable enterprise that you could in, get into? Why should Roy Green take three of his remaining four dollars and uh, <laughs> and invest it in, uh, in in the marijuana business? And and again, there's a Deloitte report which you sent along to me. Mm-hmm. About uh, about how to conduct the business. So so what make what's going to make it ultimately a profitable enterprise? Is it just the the the, the usual um, consumer need um, supply met, or at least a demand Absolutely. met? Yeah. Yeah. So there's basically two modes to think about investing. One is much more sort of obvious, but um, heart um, inducing problem of growing marijuana and selling it. Here in the United States, that would still be and still is a federal offense. So even even if you have state licenses, you're paying state taxes, particularly under this administration, they've appointed a lot of anti-marijuana officials, there is still some clear tumult regarding being in that side of the business, even though it's the most obvious wholesale retail. So what we're doing at um, SAI is to get on what we call the leafless side of this, which is to invest in ancillary businesses, in property, in um, growing equipment, in uh, technology around uh, both uh, managing the product from point A to point B and controlling the taxes. So these are not subject to federal prosecution largely. So there are two different ways that people can invest. They can probably see their best bang for their buck if they get right into the cultivation and sales, but that definitely causes the most amount of legal concern. Yeah, I tell you, if you and I had had this conversation 20 years ago, <laughs> it would have been fantasy conversation that we were having. People would have said, what have they been smoking? Anyway. Uh, when you look at the federal legislation in Canada, I do have one more question for you. When you look at the federal proposed legislation that was introduced by the government a couple of days ago, are you largely in favor? Do you think they've done a good job, or do you see any glaring weakness? Well, I think what they've done, and I know they've uh, junkets of, of officials from Parliament and the committees have come down to Colorado and met with people from the industry, law enforcement, from the taxation authority. So they have seen what a legal system looks like in a capitalistic society. I mean, rather than go to Uruguay or, or Jamaica or, or the Netherlands, where these are sort of quasi-legal, the United States and these four states really have gone over that Rubicon. So the Canadian officials have gone and seen how they've done it and largely tried to learn from what little mistakes, frankly, have been made on, on these states' parts. And so I think the Canadian effort is terrific and probably is a great model for South and North America countries in general. Alan, it's great to have spoken with you again. Former executive director of Normal in the United States, now vice president of Freedom Leaf and partner at Sensible Alternative Investments. We'll talk again, I'm sure, Alan. Thanks for the time today. Best to you, Roy. All the best. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So the uh, federal government is legalizing marijuana possession. Looking at our uh, globalnews.ca site, adults 18 and older will be able to legally buy and cultivate small amounts of marijuana for personal use, while selling the drug to a minor will become a serious new criminal offense under the federal liberal government's proposed new legal pot regime. A suite of legislation introduced Thursday would once pass to establish a strict legal framework, quote-unquote, for the production, sale, distribution, and possession of pot and make it against the law to sell cannabis to youth or 
use a young person to commit a cannabis-related crime. New penalties would range from simple police citation to 14 years behind bars. Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale told a news conference, didn't they look unhappy? When you looked at those federal politicians talking about the introduction of the legalizing marijuana legislation, they all looked like they were really, really unhappy. These are not happy people in, uh, in Parliament. So, there's a million lines, and I'm not going to use any of them. Anyway, Ralph Goodell says police forces spend between 2 and $3 billion every year trying to deal with cannabis, and yet Canadian teenagers are among the heaviest users in the Western world. We simply have to do better. Well, then they say that it's going to be 10 years in prison, potentially, if you drive while, uh, while under the influence of cannabis. And as I said earlier... That's not going to happen because if you drive drunk and kill someone, the maximum you're going to get is four years, and you'll spend probably less than two. Jody Emery and uh, her husband Mark are going to be in court next week facing trafficking and criminal charges for operating their cannabis culture stores in Toronto, in Vancouver, and Montreal. There are people who believe it's time to drop those charges. And uh, Jody Emery joins us uh, from Vancouver on The Green Show. Hi, Jody, and and how are you as you look down the road a week and prepare to go to court? Well, I should have felt vindicated that the government said they would legalize, but unfortunately, we've just seen the introduction of Prohibition 2.0. This is not legalization. It's continued criminalization, and my husband and myself and our fellow activists, we face severe sentences already as well as mandatory minimums and up to life in prison for our activism, civil disobedience. When they introduced this legislation, I was shocked to realize it simply legalizes small amounts of personal possession, which is decriminalization, really, and the ability for licensed producers to sell pot, which, of course, a lot of government officials and police officers are actually cashing in on the stocks of those companies. So the rest of this bill is nothing more except continued criminalization, harsher penalties. It's insanity. They're, they're expecting to somehow remove the criminal element by continuing to criminalize it. They're expecting to somehow stop doing the wrongs of prohibition by continuing to prohibit it. And they're giving police even more money, 2 to $3 billion, and then they're going to ask for even more. But there are a lot of reasons why we should legalize marijuana, and none of them were addressed by this legislation. It's actually quite terrifying. The, uh, the government says that it's, um, well, the government says, the government says that it's a thoughtful and, um, and, and, and predictably positive way to deal with an issue of a problem of, of decades. And God knows they've had enough time to come up with something that would work. So how would, if it were, if you were writing the legislation, what would it look like? Well, one of the reasons we agreed years ago that legalization was the way to go was that this industry already exists. It's worth billions. We have tens of thousands of Canadians growing it and selling it. Millions of Canadians actually consuming it. So that industry already exists, but it's criminalized. Now, Justice Department statistics show that 95% of marijuana growers are law-abiding citizens with no organized crime connections. So when the government says it's organized crime profiting, that's simply, if it's happening, it's simply because government policy prohibits it, makes it criminal, and therefore criminals get involved. The same would happen if you banned coffee beans tomorrow. But the majority of the marijuana industry already exists, and it's peaceful, nonviolent people who are criminalized by an unjust law. And this legislation doesn't address that. We're seeing the government trying to create a new industry of licensed producers of medical marijuana who are on the stock market and now trying to serve the recreational users. And they're criminalizing everybody else, the dispensaries, the growers, everyone like my husband and myself who hope to provide access. And so this is actually just continued prohibition, as I've said repeatedly. And my model, as a, if I had been on the task force like I requested, I would suggest that they end the criminalization of cannabis, remove cannabis from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, invite all of the current growers and sellers to come forward and to come out from the shadows into the light, pay their taxes, take pride in their product. But instead, the government is keeping them all criminalized under threat of arrest 
which basically maintains prohibition. So I would invite the government to allow everybody who's involved in the industry already to come forward, but they also need to address the fact that tens of thousands of Canadians, in fact, two million since the 60s, have received criminal records for cannabis, which prevents them from getting jobs, traveling, volunteering. People lose their jobs, their homes over cannabis. Drug testing in the workplace unfairly targets pot users as opposed to people who are alcoholics. I mean, this whole prohibition has been a massive failure and unjust. But the government and the police do not want to admit that they wrongly criminalized so many people and demonized something that's safer than alcohol and safer than the pharmaceuticals and opioids that doctors are pushing on people every day. Jody, so my if, model would say just end the criminalization, but they're not doing if, that. If this, if this law they're proposing or they're going to pass for next year, uh, if this law were on the books now, or if this law had been on the books six months ago, would you and your husband be facing criminal charges? Probably not, eh? Actually, I think criminal charges are going to keep happening. We're seeing a woman in Alberta was raided and arrested and charged for one cannabis plant. Dana Larson, an activist, is facing severe penalties for giving away hemp seeds in Calgary. No, but I'm talking if the law were in effect now, right? If, if that law were in effect and you were licensed and you were selling the product, you would be following the government's rules. Well, that's if there's reasonable, accessible regulations. But if you look at what the government's proposing, they intend to restrict the production to federal companies, mm. and that means the supply will be choked off to the provinces. So even though the provinces can regulate the retail storefronts and the selling of cannabis, if they can't get enough supply from the federal government, those businesses will cease to be able to operate. It's not going to, it's not, it's not going to remove the street corner dealer, is it? Oh, exactly. This is not going to change anything. Canadians know where to get their pot. They've always been getting it before. And people have been opening up dispensaries and openly breaking the law peacefully to demonstrate the injustice of that law. So the government is kidding itself if they think they're going to get rid of the black market. Again, you cannot get rid of a criminal element if you continue to criminalize it. It's insane what they're proposing. What would you do What would you do about youth? And again, uh, Ralph Goodell, the public safety minister federally, says police forces were set on Thursday. Police forces spend between two and three billion every year trying to deal with cannabis, and yet Canadian teenagers are among the heaviest users in the Western world. We simply have to do better. What I hear from Mr. Goodell is he hasn't got a clue what to do. And this was a largely political decision that they made with this legislation. And we simply have to do better. Either that means they have Part B planned or they have no idea what Part B is going to be, other than there's going to have to be a Part B. But, well, uh, but, but you know, kids will, continue to, kids will continue to get their hands on the stuff unless what? I mean, what would you do about keeping it away from kids? Well, I'd like people to bear in mind the terminology that we're hearing. Like, a kid to me is somebody who's a baby up until probably puberty. And then when you hit puberty, you're a teenager. Mm -hmm. And then you're a teen up until you graduate. And then you're a young adult mm -hmm. once you're 18, 19. So kids are not getting cannabis. In fact, the only kids who are getting cannabis are the ones across Canada using it medically where they ingest the oil and it stops. But, you know, seizures. you know, I had a paramedic I had a paramedic in the studio, and I'll never forget, he said to me, if you want to find out where the drug dealers are, go to any elementary school in the city and ask the grade three, four, and five students. They'll point them out to you because they're outside the schools. Oh, I've never heard of dealers hanging around outside schools because kids usually don't have money and they're not usually going to spend it on oh, This is, this is an EMT technician who said to me this. And their older friends. So when you're in high school, it's very easy to get cannabis. Right. But again, most of those people are not gangsters or criminals. Those, there's not a shady dealer hanging out at the playground. I, I would hope that teachers and parents would actually see those sort of characters around, but they don't actually exist. Nobody's saying. Well, you've got the you've got a, you've got the EMT technicians telling you that they're there. So I mean, these these people see what's going on on the street corners. But that aside, what changes on the first of July, two thousand and eighteen? What, what what really, other than the, you know, adults eighteen and older will be able to buy legally and cultivate small amounts of marijuana for personal use while selling the drug to a minor will become a serious... I'm reading from the news story again. Will become a serious new criminal offense under the federal liberal government's proposed new legal pot regime. What, other than, other than the fact that you'll be able to own, have your own and grow your own um, minor amount, um, which, which people are already doing illegally, what's going to change? 
Well, nothing really. They're just simply decriminalizing personal possession of 30 grams. But also bear in mind that that's only government-grown pot. If they catch you with marijuana that is not from a government-licensed producer, you're facing extremely harsh penalties. So they're going to make sure nobody grows from seeds that are illegal. You can only buy the seeds from the government companies. So this is a government corporate takeover of the industry. They're still going to punish everybody unless you buy it from them. So other than that, they here's a very scary thing. If you're worried about kids, if you're an 18-year-old and you share a joint with your 17-year-old friend, you could face 14 years in prison. This is going to actually hurt young people more than people know. Already, young people between the age of 16 to 19 or 20, they're the biggest group of targeted for law enforcement. They experience arrest Six, sixteen more than any other age. Six, 16 to 20? Yeah, like 16 to yeah. 20. If you look on the chart of statistics, I, I tweet a lot. If you want to know everything about cannabis and politics, I tweet yeah, I follow you on Twitter. Um, but I'll show the chart from... Statistics Canada showing that the majority of people arrested for cannabis are young people. So this Give is me. actually going to criminalize a lot of teenagers who aren't hurting anybody. Jody, I have 30 seconds. What do you want to say to Mr. Trudeau specifically? You have an opportunity to talk to Justin Trudeau. What do you tell him? I need amnesty and pardons and an apology. The fact that they admit prohibition is a failed policy means they need to apologize to the two million Canadians who have been victimized directly and the many other millions who have paid for it with tax dollars or by losing their friends or loved ones to prison. So they need to give pardons and amnesty immediately and issue a moratorium on arrest because no justification exists for continuing to criminalize peaceful people for something that is supposed to be legal next year. Jody, thank you very much for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Roy. All the best. Good luck next week. Jody uh, Emery. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, The United States drops the mother of all bombs in Afghanistan and fires missiles at a Syrian air base. North Korea threatens a nuclear test and a nuclear attack on the United States, which in turn has a huge carrier group off the coast of the Koreas. China warns of war with the Chinese foreign minister, warning both the uh, North Koreans and the United States that nobody could win such a war, you have Russia and Iran teaming up in their complaining about the missile strike on Assad's airfield. And uh, so the other question was whether or not America would strike at the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, that's North Korea, this weekend. And uh, the question was whether the uh, chubby little guy who runs North Korea, the guy with the awful haircut, is whether uh, he would exercise his nuclear muscle and hold another nuclear test. There's all sorts of questions that are out there, but so many people seem to be indifferent, not indifferent, but uh, are are not really caught up in what's going on. We're talking about potential serious fighting uh, taking place between North Korea and the United States. At least that was the concern. With me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network is Colonel Peter Mansour. He's the former executive officer to General David Petraeus. He's also a former brigade commander in Iraq, and he's the author of Surge. Um, My journey with General David Petraeus and the remaking of the Iraq War. He's a professor of military history at Ohio State University, Colonel Peter Mansour. Colonel Mansour, thank you for the time. Uh, What's your view of the dropping of the so-called mother of all bombs? Well, this particular uh, bomb uh, creates a massive overpressure, which can collapse tunnel networks. uh, It's uh, equivalent to about 11 tons of TNT. And in this case, it was a tactical decision by uh, the commander in Afghanistan, um, General John Mick Nicholson, my West Point classmate, um, to save the lives of uh, troops and instead drop this weapon and uh, destroy the ISIS tunnel networks from the air. Uh, it was a fairly, um, uh, what we would call a clean battlefield, not a lot of civilians around. It's on a, in a very remote area in eastern Afghanistan on the Pakistani border. And um, by all accounts, uh, after they went in and, and looked at the damage, they figured that they killed about 36 uh, ISIS militants, but on the other hand, they probably saved dozens of uh, friendly lives because 
you didn't have to have infantry go in and clear out those tunnels uh, hand-to-hand. Was this a signal also being sent beyond Afghanistan, maybe to, uh, maybe to Korea and to other countries that the United States is rubbing elbows with now in a not-so-friendly manner? You know, I don't think uh, that was the uh, I- intent, uh, and I don't think this was uh, some sort of um, uh, calculated move by uh, the Trump administration. On the other hand, uh, they certainly could use it to their advantage, uh, no doubt about that. Um, I think it shows uh, rather that uh, President Trump has delegated a lot of, uh, of, resp- of authority down to his combatant commanders, and you can see that in the ramped-up airstrikes in Syria and Iraq. You can see that with the, the raid in Yemen authorized by the Secretary of Defense. You can see that now with uh, the dropping of the uh, mother of all bombs in Afghanistan. And I think you'll see that going forward. Uh, I think uh, President Trump has simply unleashed the American military to do what they think is right uh, within the confines of, uh, of stated policy. How do you view and how do you think the American military views comparing Donald Trump and Barack Obama as commanders in chief? Um, at the moment, I think the military is uh, probably um, elated by the change in, in atmosphere in Washington. Under President Obama, all major decisions had to go up to the White House for uh, analysis and, uh, and uh, debate. And as a result, um, targets that uh, m- might have been struck uh, you know, disappeared in, in the time it took for a decision to be made. You, we could call that uh, paralysis by analysis. Um, President Trump is completely different. He's simply told the Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, you do what you think is right uh, within uh, our stated uh, policy and goals and, um, and within the rules of engagement. And I think you, you see that all over the place now, and the military is probably very, very happy with the, the support they have from above. The, uh, the dropping of the mother of all bombs. I spoke earlier with Douglas Wissing, a journalist who's been embedded with American troops in Afghanistan on three separate occasions, and he sees this as a significant uh, problem or uh, something that the United States should not have done because his argument is what it will do is it will draw together jihadis who were maybe at each other's throats previously, or now will say this, is, uh, this will unite us. And he also says that people on the ground in Afghanistan, the people of Afghanistan, are so tired with the corruption in their governments that they're looking to the uh, jihadis f- with the... Uh, with increased interest, and I won't say affection, but certainly with increased interest, and uh, and that the mother of all bombs may have actually coalesced all these particular uh, energies and turned them into one. What do you think? Hmm. I, I just I, I don't see how the dropping of one piece of ordnance in a very remote area would have that effect. Um, I think there's broader underlying currents that are at, at play, and, and certainly the corruption in, in Afghanistan is is one of them. I, I think Afghanistan, by all accounts, is the most corrupt country on the planet. Uh, it's also been at war since the late 70s, and, uh, and uh, that has created an unusual dynamic of its own. I, I'm not sure that uh, the people will embrace uh, the jihadis. On the other hand, the Taliban has made serious inroads into the Pashtun community, uh, but they've, they've had that support for a long, long time. So I, I don't know how this particular event changes anything, quite frankly. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Colonel Mansour, how concerned are you about what may happen over the next 48 hours, particularly if the North Korean regime decides they're going to celebrate their, I guess it's their 105th year of living in the brilliant sunshine of the uh, the family that runs the country? What if they decide that they're going to uh, have a little exercise with their nuclear capability? What's going to happen? You know, I think we're, we're closer to war in uh, Korea <clears throat> than we have been since the armistice in 1953. Um, and, and the reason is, uh, is this. The Trump administration um, realizes that the, the policy that we followed to date, which is basically kicking the can down the road, sanctioning North Korea, um, North Korea does something pro- provocative, there's negotiations, and then we, we give them something, whether it's aid or or a relax, a relaxation of sanctions, and, and then they do something provocative again, and, and we kick the can down there. This has just, just got to stop. And everyone in the administration has said that. The Secretary of State has said that. The President has said that. Um, uh, the Secretary of Defense has said that. Everyone is, realizes that 
within this administration, North Korea could get an intercontinental ballistic missile, and they could put a nuclear weapon on it, and then they could jeopardize Seattle or Vancouver or San Francisco, and it's just not going to happen. And so I think that we are very, very close to this administration taking military action unless uh, North Korea backs down and decides to start dismantling its nuclear program. And that, I think that was the message sent to the Chinese president at Mar-a-Lago when the, uh, President Trump and him met last week. When the Chinese say, and they said yesterday through the foreign minister, that nobody's going to win this war in councils, both uh, the United States and North, North Korea, to back off or back down or, or take a step backward, uh, what are the Chinese actually saying? Well, I think Whose side are they on? The, the, I, I, I think they realize the seriousness of the situation. Um, they would prefer it uh, come down to a negotiated resolution, uh, but the Trump administration is not going to allow a, a negotiated resolution that doesn't actually resolve anything. And uh, they don't want a freezing of the program, of the nuclear program. They don't want uh, to slow roll uh, for North Korea, Kim Jong-un, to slow roll us and, and continue to increase his arsenal, which is now at about 20 nuclear weapons, they want it eliminated. They want that arsenal gone. And, uh, and so I think uh, it, it either is gone via the Chinese putting pressure on them and, and through negotiations and sanctions, or it's gone via military action. But one way, it's going gonna, it's gonna to end. So if the North Koreans were to move one or two of their nuclear weapons into position not to fire at the United States now, because... I keep hearing they don't have the capability to put a nuclear warhead on their rockets and reach the United States yet, but they certainly could reach South Korea. Seoul is within uh, regular uh, military shelling distance of the North Korean army. They could reach Japan. So if the North Koreans were to make some sort of offensive on-the-ground move, suggesting that they were aiming one of their nuclear weapons, which would be picked up, I would imagine, by the the, uh, nuclear bomb sniffers in the air, the the aircraft, what does the United States do? Well, um, all options are on the table, as the Trump administration has said time and again. But if you're going to stop them, you're going to have to shoot them, right? You're going to have to um, use, uh, uh, and they have said that they would use conventional weapons only to to take out these these weapons. And, and there, there are some massive uh, bombs, even bigger than the mother of all bombs. They're called massive ordnance penetrators or MOPs that can uh, penetrate into the earth and destroy underground facilities. And uh, you could very well see those used, uh, launched from aircraft, from the, uh, from the carrier strike group that's now in position, and, from, uh, and e- even from uh, long-range bombers or, or missiles launched from the United States. All, all of those weapons have the capability to deliver that ordinance. And that very well could, could happen if North Korea makes uh, a, wrong, a wrong move here. The um, what does China do in that in that situation? Just try to be um, a, a peacemaker, or they have to take sides, and their their economic interests are siding with the United States, not with North Koreans. But traditionally, they've been an ally of North Korea. Yeah, traditionally they have, but I think they're really tired of North Korea and uh, and Kim Jong Un and his father Kim Jong Il. Right. Um, they have uh, been very very provocative. The the North Koreans. And it uh, is not working to the, the ch- interest of the Chinese. Uh, so I don't know what they do. Um, I think they probably uh, use their diplomatic uh, channels to try to calm tensions or, or if there is a strike to make sure that it doesn't turn into an all-out war. But, um, you know, it's anyone's guess at this point. What's the battlefield if it's all-out war? Is it South Korea? Um, it's South Korea. It could be Japan as well. That's why we have... Uh, the new um, uh, anti-missile system that we just uh, the United States just emplaced in South Korea that can shoot down North Korean missiles headed for Seoul or, or for Japan. Uh, but um, if, if it is all-out war, you have uh, thousands of artillery pieces within range of the South Korean capital, um, and it would be very, very devastating uh, both to the uh, South Korean civilians and eventually to North Korea itself because if it comes down to an all-out war, North Korea cannot win, and they will be completely crushed eventually, um, but they will take a lot of people down with them. Yeah, and there's been no armistice, or at least there's been no, uh, there's been no peace, there's been no official ceasefire. There's an armistice, right, between, between uh, 
the United States, or is the United Nations and uh, North Korea? That's correct. A, right now, it's uh, technically a state of war that's in uh, in a ceasefire. Right. Um, and it is technically the United Nations against uh, at war with uh, with North Korea. That so, is not. So, do you think the U- you think the U.S. is uh, is working to put uh, some sort of coalition together to to um, to attack North Korea if the North Koreans make moves with their nuclear weapons? Um, I, I think those negotiations are probably ongoing at yeah. uh, at um, a very high level. Uh, you, you've seen the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense. Uh, in uh, South Korea and in Japan uh, recently, and um, and I'm sure they are making sure that uh, if we strike, it's with the approval of our allies over there. This is serious business, isn't it? This is as serious as it gets. And, in fact, President Obama, by all accounts, told President Trump when he took office that this would be the number one crisis coming into um, into office, and I think he was right. Would it surprise you if something very negative develops over the next 48 hours? That seems to have been the time frame that has been of great concern. It, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, and if it doesn't develop now, I think very likely within the next few years, if North Korea doesn't halt their development of an intercontinental ballistic missile, we're going to see some action taken if, uh, if China and, and uh, the United States can't put enough pressure on North Korea to halt their program. Colonel Mansur, where does uh, Vladimir Putin fit into all of this in Russia? You know, it, uh, interestingly enough, Russia has really stayed out of the uh, uh, the North Korea issue, um, even though um, there was uh, Russia was also an ally of North Korea back back in the day. Um, they don't seem to be uh, very much interested in that part of the world, or at least that particular conflict. I, I think uh, Vladimir Putin's sights are set uh, elsewhere. Uh, in Ukraine and the Baltic states and, and Syria, and he's got enough on his plate. He's probably uh, holding his fire on this one. So the final question I have for you is, what's your prediction as a professional who's been at the at the uh, very pointy end of the stick of uh, some really serious battles, and, and you understand military strategy and politics as well, what's your best call on what's going to happen in the next in the short term? Um, in the short term, I think cooler heads will prevail on, on both sides. Um, but I think there's greater than a 50-50 chance that we will see some sort of conflict break out on the Korean Peninsula uh, in the next four years. And it wouldn't surprise you if it's in the next 48 hours. And it wouldn't surprise me at all. Wow. Colonel Mansour, always good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks, Roy. All the best. Colonel uh, Peter Mansour. Serge. My Journey with General David Petraeus and the Remaking of the Iraq War is his book. He was brigade commander, first brigade commander in Iraq. And it's sobering to hear someone like uh, Peter Mansour, Colonel Mansour, say it wouldn't surprise him if war breaks out in the next 48 hours. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Catherine Swift is the head of WorkingCanadians.ca, formerly the CEO and president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, the most powerful woman in Canada. <laughs> How are you? I'm great, thanks. The other two didn't join us today. Oh, come on. Yes, I'm here. Sure they did. This is an April Fool's joke. It's funny. Oh, there you are. It's a little late. There you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're here, Roy. I just wanted to see what the reaction would be. If we were awake. <laughs> At Michelle Simpson on Twitter, former liberal MP and former seatmate to Justin Trudeau. Why don't you, why don't you elbow him when you were sitting next to him? You know? You should elbow I, him. I so. didn't elbow him, but I did gently smack the back of his head when he said something. Did you? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, because he was a newly minted MP the way I was. Explain that. You have to tell us what happened. Well, you know, if he said something silly, yeah. you know how you can what do you mean if? naturedly right. smack someone on the back of the head. Right. I would say to him, well, that's the dumbest thing I've heard, <laughs> and kind of 
smack him. I guess I didn't realize that one day <laughs> he would be the well, prime minister. Michelle, maybe you're at fault. But you know what? Like, maybe I don't you, take you any know, of it re- back. Realigned his brain or there, something. There must be video. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, you're not allowed to take any cameras. That was in the House of Commons. Well, that's beautiful. I mean, you must have slapped him a lot. Well, kind of. When he came in looking <laughs> like, um, uh, you know, a plantation owner one day, I, I kind of, I said, who are you made up to be? <laughs> oh, I can see it. If, if, if you were still in that building, you'd be one of his lead cabinet ministers. Oh, sure. I mean, a lot of that head slapping going on. Okay, so I just heard a very former senior officer in the United States military, the executive officer to General David Petraeus in Iraq during the surge, say that he would not be surprised if a shooting war breaks out between North Korea and the United States in the next 48 hours. Not saying it's going to happen, but it wouldn't surprise him if he did. It wouldn't surprise him if the North made some sort of uh, aggressive move with their nuclear weapons toward South Korea or other countries in the region like Japan, and the U.S. would react immediately. Uh, that's, that kind of stops you in your tracks when you hear that. Well, I, I listened I listened to the last half hour, because right, I was intrigued to hear, um, you know, what, what he would say. And although I, I can't say I'm shocked just reading what's going on right now, there's all this brinksmanship from North Korea, which so what else is new. And yet, from what I understand today, they said they were going to run another test, another nuclear test. And the thing that I think is, is smart that the Trump administration is doing is he's really engaging China and Russia, who, of course, China in particular, have, you know, they, they more or less support North Korea in many, many ways. So... And, and and North Korea apparently backed down. This I'm just saying. I you know trying to stay up to date. But so it, it'll be an interesting time. But I think the question we all have to ask ourselves is: Do we just let these rogue states go on forever? Can't. And you know it's it's a good question. I'm not sure what the answer is. Well, I also asked him how the, he thinks the U.S. military is uh, responding to the fact that they have a change in commanders in chief from Obama to Trump, and his word was, they're ecstatic. I, I would say, knowing the military, and I've spent time with military over many, many years off and on, what they always want to do is the job they were trained for. That's it. And I would bet, I thought the exact same thing, I bet they're over the moon, they're able to do the job they're trained for. Yeah. How do you feel, how do you, how do you all feel about... General, <laughs> how do you all feel about General Trump um, turning over the operational decision making to the generals? I should have said President Trump, but I, you know, to the operational uh, decision making and proceedings to on-site senior military officers and saying you're the experts, you assess the situation, you respond as you believe we should. Is that a good move, or does it concern you? Because like in any organization, you can have individuals close to the top who are in deep competition with one another, and then it's a jockeying for whose plan is, is approved, whether it's in the corporate boardroom or whether it's in a military planning uh, environment. How do you, uh, Linda, how do you feel about, um, about pre- President Trump giving the generals operational green lights? First of all, I think it's wise that they certainly, as you just said, train for this and et cetera. But my heart of hearts, I really believe it should be both. I think they all have to be engaged in this. Um, And certainly Trump could be taking the advice from these experts who that's what they're trained for. Um, So, you know, I would like to see it as a group collective. um, But I just want to back up to what Catherine said this is scary, Roy. I mean, usually war is tied to economics, and we know China would love to unseat the U.S. of A as the powerhouse, the economic powerhouse of the world. Um, I just wonder, and I'm reading into this, and this has been almost coming to a head for a time, but 
this really does scare me, I will say. Yeah, it's something not to be taken lightly, yeah. as, as uh, Colonel Mansour suggested. Michelle, I've also had um, Colonel Steve Day, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, former commanding officer of uh, JTF2, Joint Task Force 2, is a regular contributor to the program. I really deeply appreciate it. And you can, uh, you can check them out on Facebook and, um, and, uh, and on Twitter, Colonel Steve Day's uh, Twitter account. But he said to us that there are times when politicians make decisions based on political uh, determination as opposed to and I, I don't want to mis, misquote him. I'm sort of par- paraphrasing and try to be careful. Uh, as opposed to a letting the military people do what they know how to do and what they know how to do exceedingly well. In other words, there are times for the politician to step aside and tell the military people, it's your game now. What do you think, Michelle? I, I, that would be, that's a grave concern to me, uh, Roy, because as Catherine stated, you know, there over the moon and when you really think about it i look at dnd in canada and how much money they wanted to spend when left and they have spent when left to their own devices you know for the f-35 and you know they want all the toys i'm sorry that's how i feel and left to their own devices, I don't think they're opposed to war. Well, I think, I think the D&D thing, though, Michelle, is a lot more to do with the bureaucracy in Ottawa rather than the people that are actually the, the boots on the ground, the military types. And, and um, frankly, listen, nobody's perfect as a decision maker. We all know that, politicians, military, whatever. But if it's a military-related issue... I personally would be more confident if senior military people who presumably, and again, we must presume, presumably know what they're doing a heck of a lot more than the politicians do. Yeah. Is it general? So is it, that's, is it... that's my call, and, and then nothing's perfect, and everybody can make mistakes, no question. And the problem is with these kinds of issues, the mistakes are very But they do, they do mistakes. jockey for position, Catherine. You know oh, what, though? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Beauties, I have to take a, I have to take a break. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Beauties and the Beast with Catherine Swift, workingcanadians.ca, at Linda Leatherdale and lindaleatherdale.com, former money editor of the Toronto Sun and former Liberal Member of Parliament and former seatmate to the Prime Minister of Canada, the current one, Michelle Simpson, at Michelle Simpson. Before we talk about other things, we're going to have to move through these topics quickly. We, we all heard this. Can we, what was that? Can we listen to it again? So there they're extracting Dr. Dow, I think it is, from the United Airlines aircraft. Then he got back on the plane and listen to this. I have to go home. 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 Go home. Just kill me. Just kill me. Kill me. Just kill me. Kill me. Just kill me. Just kill me. Just kill me. Linda? <laughs> disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. Thugs, United and Air Canada, because I had a, well, not as bad as that poor gentleman, but certainly treated like cattle. You're not a customer. You're just, oh, I, I'm disgusted. That's all I can say, Roy. And you know what? United, it's going to cost you a hell of a lot of money. Michelle, you just flew back from the uh, United States. To Canada, what airline? I actually use WestJet because I've been boycotting Air Canada whenever I can for treatment that I received that was absolutely inexcusable. 
And when you when you hear that uh, that exchange on that airplane, what are you hearing? Uh, something that is inexcusable, and I do hope that whatever legal action he takes, he wins big. But I sh- I'm sure it won't go to court. Catherine, oh, I hear I hear the sound of big big checks being written. <laughs> you know, looking at this just from a PR standpoint, who may who made that decision, eh? I mean, the pilots are saying it wasn't their fault, even though they called the security people. The, anyway, it, it, it's very tough to say, but I'll tell you that the humor on it has been terrific. I've, I've been reading about, you know, we've heard of red-eye flights, and now we have black-eye flights. Um, we have first class, and then we have welterweight class. <laughs> anyway, the, the jokes have been rife on late-night TV and stuff about this. But what a massive public relations faux pas on the part of United. But and and I, the CEO Captain, himself, I'd I mean, never made the dumb decision. The deep I, was I'd always heard. He, he, dug, he dug himself deeper in the hole. No, but I'd always heard that the captain of a flight is like God. Yes, in charge. Yes. Takes, takes yeah. precedent over lease, over security. He's in charge yep. of that plane. And they're disavowing responsibility, the pilots. Exactly. Just for the record. So I don't buy that. So you fly the friendly skies with United. It's <sighs> getting off the ground that's hazardous yeah. to you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, we'll, so. We'll in, drag you all over the world. <laughs> so we have two minutes left. The Children's Aid Society of Ontario Ugh. removing foster children from a Hamilton couple because it's devout Christians. They refused to tell their kids the Easter Bunny is real. They told CAS that they were devout Christians. They told them they weren't going to lie to the kids, and they pulled these kids out of a out of a uh, out of a, a, a good home. And because of the caseworker saying the Easter Bunny is part of Canadian culture. Well, the thing that gets me about this is this couple made it clear up front what their beliefs were and what they would and would not do. And and the and the CAS, the Children's Aid Society, accepted that at the time, and now they're reversing it. I suspect there's a zealot of a of a government official working for CAS that has decided to make a big deal out of this, even though this couple has has been they've been foster parents for quite a while. More than one zealot. If you, I want everybody when you have the time, go online and watch the film Powerful as God. It has to do with Ontario's Children's Aid Society. They tried to stop it from being released, but it was released as a doctor. I think it was a doctoral thesis by uh, part of a doctoral thesis by uh, the uh, the producer who I spoke with when it was released. And it's all about uh, people who have been affected by Ontario Children's Aid. And it was one of the workers who told the uh, one of her clients. That's how the title came about. We are as powerful as God. Yeah, you know what? We're as powerful they as God. They let children die in inappropriate homes. And it's happened. And then tear them away because of the Easter Bunny? Just, just Give me a I interviewed... But this is ultimately at the government's feet. This is the Ontario yeah. government, folks. Yeah, yeah. I, I interviewed you know, the father... the ultimate responsible party. Guys, I interviewed the father earlier today. We're going to play it back tomorrow. I asked him, do you think it would have happened to you if you weren't Christian? <laughs> I have to listen to his answer. Ooh. Ooh I'm going play to that listen. back tomorrow. Beauties, that's our time. Oh, happy Easter. Shock. Happy Easter. Yes, happy Easter to everyone. Well, let's hope we're not at war in the next day and a half. That's right. Let's hope. Thank you, Catherine Swift, at Working Canadians, Michelle Simpson, at Michelle Simpson, Linda Leatherdale, at Linda Leatherdale, and lindaleatherdale.com. We'll come right back. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.